Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. Hi, I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our breast cancer journey, but this time we're getting to the first of our episodes on the medical oncology aspect, focusing on the ER positive early stage breast cancer. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode and there's a lot of information and details to go through. We're gonna break down how we select for chemotherapy. We're gonna talk about things like endocrine therapy, and then we're gonna talk about how we use our molecular testing to determine which women can be spared from chemotherapy. So it's a lot of information and this will span over two episodes. So bear with us, but very high yield. And we're going to get everybody up to speed to understand why we do the things that we do. Yeah. You know, I think we had some great discussions in the past few weeks with other specialties and other providers. I've learned a ton from that, but it's also nice to be getting back to just some real medical oncology stuff. All right. I agree, Dan. All right, guys. Well then let's go ahead and roll that show. All right, guys, how we doing? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Been watching a lot of Succession, trying to catch up with Logan. He's already on the final season. I'm still in season two. I actually started Succession right after Ryan Miller a few episodes back told us about it. And I think I'm at season two, episode five. So I'm probably right there with you, Dan. The thing with me, I just can't get into it. It's so I don't know who to like in the show. So I've been up to speed. I've been watching some happy TV, Ted Lasso. It's been really good. Yeah, for good things. Guys, I'm really amped because we are finally here at the first of our medical oncology episodes for our breast cancer series. And in typical fashion, we're going to have a great discussion today, I expect, on the ER positive early stage breast cancers. I know this is going to be a pretty lengthy discussion. There's a lot of really good research that has come for this particular subset of breast cancer. So why don't we just get started? Vivek, do you want to kick us off with the case? I think you said you saw someone recently in your clinic. Yeah, let's do it. So I've saw a 37-year-old female who presented after a recent diagnosis of right-sided breast cancer. She was noted to have a 4.2-centimeter primary breast mass on a diagnostic mammogram after she had felt a lump. She underwent an ultrasound-guided core biopsy. The pathology was consistent with invasive ductal mammary carcinoma that was ERPR positive by IHC and HER2 negative with IHC2+, which was equivocal, so she then had reflex fish testing, which was negative. It was a grade 3 tumor with a KI67 of 20%, and there was no special type histology. Importantly, she had a clinically palpable, movable, 1cm right axillary lymph node that was biopsy-proven, ERPR-positive ductal carcinoma, and a clip was placed by radiology. She tells us that she ideally wants breast-conserving surgery instead of a mastectomy. So I want to ask you guys, how does a medical oncologist approach a patient with hormone receptor-positive breast cancer for curative intent? Yeah, whenever I'm meeting a patient with new diagnosis breast cancer, I always want to know a certain package of information. And you already hit on a few of these pointers, but one thing that we absolutely always need to know if somebody's got this hormone receptor-positive tumor are they also HER2 positive? That has really important implications for treatment planning and how we counsel a patient on the risk and, and things like that. So super important to know that up front. You want to know the size and the grade of the tumor, which you mentioned. 
You do need to know the nodal involvement, and that's usually based on both imaging and clinical examination. Then you also need to know their menopausal status. This is something that is really going to dictate our choice of endocrine therapy down the road. And for menopausal status, we think of patients who are over 60 years old or in surgical menopause, somebody who's had their ovaries removed, or who's under 60 years old but has had 12 months or more of amenorrhea, and that's absent any pharmacologic influence causing amenorrhea. There are also, of course, some tests you can send, hormone tests, to confirm menopausal status, but in broad strokes, that's kind of how I think about it. The last thing I want to know is whether or not someone's interested in breast-conserving surgery. You'll also need to kind of figure out if that's even a possibility, if that's something that can be offered based on the size and the location of the tumor. If somebody's kind of right on the borderline of being eligible for breast-conserving surgery, there are sort of different strategies that we have to employ. Via, could you take us through some of that if somebody's like right on the borderline of being eligible? Yeah, I think that's a really important point is to really ask our patients these questions. And the key thing here is we might consider a neoadjuvant approach to treatment. When we think about neoadjuvant approach in hormone receptor positive breast cancer, all of these patients will get adjuvant endocrine therapy. I wondered for the longest time, why not try neoadjuvant endocrine therapy? And there's been a push to work that into the algorithm. But at least right now in early 2023, this endocrine therapy doesn't have the same amount of pathologic complete response and objective response that some chemotherapy does. So you don't see it very often, but you might consider giving something like a neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So that's why that is so important. Let's get back to our case though. Ronak, could you give us a little bit of sense of what this PATH report meant that I detailed and decode that a little bit for us? We talked about it in our prior breast cancer vocabulary episode, but let's just recap it here. Yeah, absolutely. And if it wasn't for that episode, I think my head would have been spinning more than it already was when you're reading that PATH report. But guys, remember that the first thing that we want to ask ourselves is what is the T stage? And remember, Viva gave us that great analogy about the dollar bills, right? So you remember your dollar bills. So T1C is greater than or equal to one centimeter. T2 is greater than two centimeters. And T3 is greater than or equal to five centimeters. So this patient was a T2 because remember her disease was 4.2 centimeters in size. And so she's T2 because she's greater than two, but less than five. The next thing we talked about was the hormone receptor status, right? So she is ER and or PR positive. That's important for us to know. And we know that from the PATH report as well. Recall that this is based on IHC or aminohistochemical staining. Again, that has important treatment implications. So you definitely want to look into that. He said that the patient had no special type. Remember that special type histologies like lobular tend to be less chemotherapy responsive and may be treated with endocrine therapy alone. And then within the hormone receptor positive breast cancers, you may see articles that reference that luminal type that we talked about as well. And remember that this is a molecular profile of the tumor. This is an older way of thinking about it. We now have new genomic profiling, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But remember that luminal A types are typically your less aggressive, more hormone responsive, and less chemo responsive subtypes. Unfortunately, these tend to have later relapses and metastatic disease can be more common with a luminal type A. In a luminal type B though, they're generally less hormone dependent, more chemo responsive, but in this disease subtype, we tend to see earlier relapses being an issue. Well, we're gonna talk a little bit more about this oncotype and mammoprint, these genetic profiling options in our next episode. 
But one thing I've always kind of wondered about breast cancer is so many other cancers, we are really firm in recommending neoadjuvant treatment. With these hormone receptor positive HER2 negative tumors, how do we think about that? Vivek, you mentioned something about patients who are on the borderline of being eligible for breast conserving therapy. What other situations are we using this strategy? Yeah, this is a really important thing to talk about. And I think what we need to do is understand the rationale for neoadjuvant chemotherapy in the field of breast cancer. There are certain subtypes of breast cancer, HER2 positive disease, triple negative breast cancer, that we're often going to give a neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach, but hormone receptor positive disease is different. What we found was, as we discovered the importance of systemic disease control, the thought was, what if earlier systemic control prior to definitive local therapy would decrease the likelihood of metastatic disease and improve overall survival? In the 90s, there was more of a push for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and we later found that for women who did get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, those who had a pathologic complete response ended up living longer. We knew that at the time of surgery, if there was nothing left over, that was a favorable prognostic marker. So the thought was, well, what if we use this idea of pathologic CR as a surrogate for women doing better and living longer in an idea that, well, if we give this neoadjuvant chemotherapy, achieve more pathologic complete response, that we would have better outcomes. The problem with this in hormone receptor positive disease is twofold. One, in general, this endpoint of pathologic complete response has not been validated as a true surrogate endpoint for survival. It was just a thought. We know it's prognostic but it doesn't necessarily validate as a surrogate, and we'll talk about that in future episodes. But let's say we assume that pathologic CR is an appropriate surrogate. Few patients with hormone receptor positive disease will actually achieve a pathologic CR with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is why if these women need it, you'll often see it in the adjuvant setting, not in the neoadjuvant setting. So like Dan said, when are we going to do this? Well, I think about this in two ways. Number one, if we ever need to make surgery easier. You might have a tumor that is inoperable, that the surgeon says, I cannot operate on this now, let's shrink it. In that case, we'd think about a neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach. Another option would be if we needed to downstage a tumor, if a patient desired breast-conserving surgery, we could give neoadjuvant chemo because you can still get responses, shrink the tumor, and roughly 15 to 20% of these patients will convert from mastectomy to breast-conserving surgery with a lumpectomy. So it's worth a shot if a woman is highly desiring that type of procedure. And when I think about surgery being harder, those inoperable cases, I'm often thinking the tumor is greater than five centimeters. Ronick talked about the dollar bills, $1 bill, $2 bill, $5 bill. It's greater than that $5 bill, we might consider it. And if there's chest wall invasion, things like that, that's another situation where we said, hey, this is a pretty big tumor. Let's give some systemic therapy up front. The second situation where I think about neoadjuvant chemotherapy in these women is premenopausal nodal disease. Every premenopausal woman who has lymph node disease, we think about giving chemotherapy. And if we think, hey, we're going to do this in the adjuvant setting anyway, what we could possibly do is give chemotherapy now downstage the axilla and potentially avoid an axillary lymph node dissection, we could do something like a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So I think that is huge to think about. And when I think about which tumors have a higher chance of having this response, I think about a higher grade tumor and a tumor with a higher KI-67, which makes a whole lot of sense that hormone receptor positive tumors don't respond as much 
to this chemotherapy because they tend to be lower grade with a lower KI-67. And there was a meta-analysis that was published in JAMA Surgery that looked at this question. And what they found was, well, if you give neoadjuvant chemotherapy, luminal B, which happens to have a higher KI-67, generally higher grade tumors, had a higher pathologic complete response rate to neoadjuvant chemo, 35% versus about 20% in luminal A. So again, you're just seeing better responses. So those are just things on the path report to think about for somebody who might be more chemo responsive. So I think you guys have convinced me about the importance of considering chemotherapy in these patients in the appropriate situation. So when neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy is indicated, what kinds of regimens are we talking about? And Vivek, you mentioned, you know, the possibility of a path CR. How often are we even seeing a path CR? Yeah, so like I said, it matters the grade, the KI67. In the early studies, when we just gave neoadjuvant chemotherapy to say, hey, let's see what happens, and we didn't break it down by hormone positive, HER2 positive, triple negative, those subtypes, we found that it was roughly 30%. About a third of women got a path CR. Once we started to break it down, triple negative breast cancer tends to have the highest path CR rate, followed by HER2, and then the lowest path CR rate at about only 15% is this hormone receptor positive disease. But when we think about doing this neoadjuvant in the right setting that we had talked about before, I think about two regimens. And these are the same regimens that we talk about in the adjuvant setting, and we're going to explain why we use these regimens. The first one is called dose-dense ACT. You hear this all the time. That has an anthracycline, doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide. That's the dose-dense part. You do it every two weeks for four cycles, and that's followed by weekly the T is for paclitaxel weekly for 12 weeks. So a pretty good course of therapy, several months of therapy. And remember that T is for paclitaxel or taxol. For TC, the other regimen that we use, that's only for four cycles, so much shorter duration of time. And that's docetaxel and cyclophosphamide. So the T in this case is for taxotere, so a different type of drug, a different taxane. And what's nice about TC is that well, it's shorter duration. There's lower risk of cardiotoxicity. You don't have that anthracycline, so we're not worried about that. And a lower risk of treatment-related MDS and leukemia. I'm so glad you brought these up. I remember learning about these regimens when I was in breast cancer clinic during fellowship. And one of the things that I found really confusing is, okay, so we have these two regimens. How do we decide which one we're going to employ? And you know, when somebody's going to get anthracycline, when they're just going to do the TC. And then, I mean, these acronyms, the T stands for two different drugs. Can you explain a little bit about the difference as well between paclitaxel and docetaxel? Yeah, these are critically important questions. And every HEMOC fellow should check out our show notes because we will go through lots of details in a really understandable manner if you're interested in this. But I'm going to briefly summarize. One important trial is called the ABC trial, which is anthracyclines in early breast cancer. So it's cleverly named there for ABC. It was a really clever design where there was a bunch of adjuvant trials running simultaneously at cooperative groups, and they did a pre-planned analysis to say, let's see if we need the anthracycline. Let's compare docetaxel and cyclophosphamide versus docetaxel, cyclophosphamide, and doxorubicin. So this is the idea, do you need an anthracycline? Bottom line is this, and these are the fellow on-call takeaways. We found that anthracycline-based approach improves outcomes for node-positive disease. So if there's nodal positivity and we want to do a neoadjuvant treatment, we think about this dose-dense ACT. 
probably has the highest response rates when we think about that. But in hormone receptor positive disease, what we found in that study is that you don't need an anthracycline for patients with node negative disease. And you could think about omitting an anthracycline if a patient had less than four nodes in the hormone receptor positive setting. So those are the caveats for hormone receptor positive disease. I want everyone to remember the number four. When we think about hormone receptor positive disease, this will make a lot more sense when we get to the oncotype and the mammoprint and we talk about clinical risk. The second thing that we talked about is what's the deal with using Taxol in dose-dense ACT? If this TC combination was highly effective, why don't we use docetaxel instead of Taxol in that? Because docetaxel is generally what we think of as a stronger drug than paclitaxel. The reason is there was a cooperative group, an ECOG trial, where they actually looked at this question. They said, hey, what if we did dose-dense AC and chase that with paclitaxel weekly versus docetaxel? They found similar response rates, similar survival with less toxicity, and that's why we use taxol in that dose-dense ACT. That definitely does clarify things. So for this premenopausal patient with hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative disease that had a positive lymph node with grade 3 features and a higher KI67, it is very reasonable to proceed with neoadjuvant dose-dense ACT based on what Vivix just said, given that we will need chemotherapy anyway, and here is the hope that we are going to be able to allow for this breast conservation surgery and omitting the axillary lymph node dissection if she does in fact achieve a pathologic CR on her sentinel lymph node biopsy. So remember that we use a sentinel lymph node biopsy to try to avoid the need for that axillary lymph node dissection as we discussed with Dr. Fisher a few episodes back. Guys, let's make this case just a little bit simpler. Let's say we have a patient with a 2.8 centimeter hormone receptor positive HER2 negative tumor that is grade one with no special type. This patient underwent a lumpectomy and a sentinel lymph node biopsy, and that was negative. And so we achieved local control with the surgery that was recently conducted on this patient. Now, how do we use all this information to decide what to do next in terms of whether or not she needs any systemic therapy? Whenever I'm working with a patient who has a diagnosis of hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, I'm going to base their adjuvant therapy around endocrine therapy or suppression of the effect of the estrogen hormone on their tumor. We really think of the hormones as driving the growth of these tumor cells. So blocking that is going to be important. And the two major options that we have are tamoxifen, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, and aromatase inhibitors, which suppress the synthesis of estrogens via the aromatase enzyme. The first sort of branch point in how I decide on what I'm going to use is whether or not the patient is menopausal. In premenopausal women, we reach for tamoxifen. This selective estrogen receptor modulator, it works in sort of an interesting way in that in the breast tissue, it has an antagonistic effect on the estrogen receptor. It blocks the effect of estrogen on breast tissue, including these tumor cells. But in most of the other tissues in the body, including the bone and the endometrial lining, it actually has an agonist effect. So it enhances the effect of estrogen signaling. The reason we don't just try and shut off estrogen production altogether with aromatase inhibitors in premenopausal women is because in the ovaries, there's just so much aromatase produced there. And that production actually increases further when estrogen levels fall. So after you start somebody on an aromatase inhibitor, estrogen levels fall, the gonadotropins increase, 
that further amps up the production of aromatase in the ovaries. So you basically just can't overwhelm the amount of aromatase that's there and completely shut off estrogen production with aromatase inhibitors in premenopausal women. Postmenopausal women, on the other hand, totally different story because the ovaries are no longer producing estrogen. You just have to shut off the aromatase and the fat. And so in the postmenopausal population, we reach for the aromatase inhibitors generally. So Ronick, when we think about tamoxifen in premenopausal women, how long are we giving it and what's some of the data surrounding that practice? Yeah, absolutely. And this question I recently had in my clinic as well. So, and I took a little bit of time to read into this. So in premenopausal women, we are typically going to reach for that tamoxifen based on the mechanism that Dan just described. And the one study that I found that supported this idea about how long to give people adjuvant tamoxifen was the ATLAS study. So this is adjuvant tamoxifen, longer against shorter, as another very clever name. That took place in the US, and there was a similar study done in the UK called the ADAM trial. And essentially, what they were trying to determine is, is there any major difference in outcomes if patients receive 10 years of tamoxifen versus five years of tamoxifen? And essentially, what we need to know is that the 10-year disease-free survival and overall survival was improved by 3% absolute points when compared to 5 years versus 10. So, said another way, if a patient received 10 years of treatment versus 5, the disease-free survival and the overall survival was improved by 3%. So what does this mean in terms of how we use this clinically? What we want you to remember is that for women then with low-risk disease and a low risk of recurrence, then it seems very reasonable to stop after five years because you know that 3% benefit may not actually be that significant in the long run. And remember, these drugs do have toxicities. They're not benign interventions. So in someone that's low risk, we can consider stopping after five years. But in a patient that is higher risk, then maybe you want to consider extending that to 10 years. And the other really interesting thing that comes up, especially regarding this question about how long to put someone on therapy for, is that this patient population that we're talking about now is premenopausal. And so if a woman decides that she wants to have a child and wants to become pregnant or is pregnant, what do we do about their tamoxifen? And so there actually was a study called the POSITIVE trial that was recently presented at the San Antonio Breast Conference in late 2022. That does suggest that women pause therapy for about two years after completing 18 to 30 months of adjuvant endocrine therapy and still had good outcomes. So what the takeaway from this is, is that if there's a need to stop for a little while for something like a pregnancy, the outcomes are not significantly different, which is certainly reassuring. Yeah, Rodek, that's really important to think about is these women are getting adjuvant therapy. We always think about, do we do five years? Do we do 10 years? In the premenopausal setting, these women have a lot of estrogen. And if estrogen's driving our breast cancer growth, and we know that there are late relapses, that luminal A subtype that we're not looking for as much anymore, but we know that can happen at 10, 15 years down the line. Doing this extended therapy can be important. And when we think about everything and how we're presenting it here in this podcast, we're talking about absolute percentage points because relative percentages, when we think about this stuff, can get complicated. That's why we're saying a 3% absolute increase. And I think that's a little bit easier to digest. So the next thing I wanted to jump to now was 
what if our patient was postmenopausal? We had a premenopausal patient in the case we just talked about. What about that postmenopausal female? What's the data for aromatase inhibitors? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, in the postmenopausal population, we're reaching for the aromatase inhibitors. And that's because in patients without functioning ovaries, a majority of estrogen is being produced in the periphery. It's being synthesized by aromatase enzymes that are out in the adipose tissue, and they convert circulating testosterone and androstenedione into early precursors of estrogen. And so all we need to do to suppress estrogen production altogether in these patients is inhibit that aromatase. And because, as I mentioned before, the fat tissue does not amplify its aromatase production in response to estrogen suppression like the ovaries do, an aromatase inhibitor is able to basically completely shut off that estrogen production. We do have pretty good data backing this up. In 2015, there was a big meta-analysis performed looking at almost 32,000 postmenopausal women who had early-stage ER-positive breast cancer. And we'll have the details of this in our show notes, along with the link to the primary source itself. But the takeaway is that there is strong data to suggest that AI is superior to tamoxifen in the postmenopausal population. We did see a signal for pretty significant side effects with AI versus tamoxifen. And for folks who are having difficulty tolerating an AI-based strategy, it's reasonable to go for an approach called switch therapy, where you start on tamoxifen and then switch to an AI afterwards. But it's best to really try and push through the AI throughout, if at all possible. Yeah, I think that's really key. And when I really think about that big meta-analysis there in the postmenopausal women, what really strikes me is that you can do this switch therapy that as long as you incorporate that aromatase inhibitor at some point, you're still capturing that benefit. So we need to think about quality of life and the patient perspective when we think about these treatments and not just say, you must do this one way. We talked about pregnancy things in life happen. And it's really important that we say, well, we do have good data backing this up that maybe we do two years of tamoxifen, three years of tamoxifen, two years of AI or vice versa. Switch therapy is very reasonable in this patient population. But if we can, we try to push forward with that aromatase inhibitor for five years. One thing I wanted to also talk about is in those high-risk premenopausal women, and this will end our discussion of endocrine therapy, we think about sometimes using ovarian suppression, whether that's in the form of a GnRH agonist or thinking about actually surgically removing the ovaries or ovarian ablation, things like that. And if estrogen is this major driver of breast cancer and we have a higher risk patient, we can think about doing this. But Ronak, can you take us through the women that might benefit from ovarian suppression with aromatase inhibitor in the premenopausal setting? Yeah, absolutely. So Remember, I think this is something that we have to keep in mind, and I'm going to say this over and over and over again. In these cases, right, our patients had surgery, they had the tumor removed, and what we are now doing is trying to decrease the likelihood of that cancer ever coming back. So in the end, it always is about a risk and a benefit, which does include quality of life, because as I mentioned, and as we discussed in our pharmacology episode, these drugs are not without their fair share of side effects. So we just want to be conscious of that. So there was this 
really important study that every hematology oncology fellow needs to know. And this was the composite data from the soft and text trials, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. And it included data from these two trials, soft and text, soft suppression of ovarian function and text tamoxifen versus exomustine trial. So I want to give you a little bit of perspective about these because this is really, really important. So the soft trial contained all premenopausal women and patients who were deemed appropriate to receive chemotherapy by their physicians received their chemotherapy before enrollment in the trial. And in this trial, there were three arms that patients were randomized to. They were randomized to tamoxifen alone, which remember is a CERM based on what Dan told us. They got tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression. So looking at the addition of ovarian suppression in addition to tamoxifen. And then the third arm was exomustane, which is an aromatase inhibitor plus ovarian suppression. So that's the soft trial. The text trial was also all premenopausal women. These patients did not receive chemotherapy before enrollment, but if chemotherapy was to be given, it was given concurrently while they were enrolled on the trial. And in this study, there were only two arms. It was a tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression and exomustane and ovarian suppression. They were looking at a few things. The primary endpoints of these were disease-free survival, invasive contralateral breast cancer, and then, of course, overall survival. And the data from this is actually really, really interesting. And I would encourage all of you to look at the actual figures in the paper. But briefly, the combined data, when they combined the data from both soft and text, suggested that the disease-free survival was 4% better with exomustane plus ovarian suppression compared to tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression. And the combined freedom from distant recurrence was 2.1% better when using the exomustane plus ovarian suppression. And the overall survival was only 0.1% better. So essentially, we're saying that for disease-free survival and recurrence, the exomustane plus ovarian suppression was better than tamoxifen. But then if we look at this data a little bit more closely, when we stratified the patients by those that received chemotherapy or those that were receiving chemotherapy in their respective studies, this benefit was magnified when that was compared to the patients that never received any chemotherapy. So what did we learn from this? We learned that in patients who are very high risk and high risk enough that they receive chemotherapy, there appears to be a benefit of adding ovarian suppression. So put another way, a patient who has higher risk disease and a higher risk of recurrence, given the characteristics of their tumor, including things like that we've talked about today, size, grade, nodal involvement, things like that, are more likely to derive benefit from the addition of ovarian suppression to their regimen. If possible, we want to reach for the aromatase inhibitor plus ovarian suppression because the data supports that it has slightly better outcomes than using tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression. But keep in mind that all of this data needs to be used in the appropriate context. There was about a 25% rate of withdrawal from the trial amongst patients who received ovarian suppression because the side effect profile is so severe. So again, this data was really, really important. Guys, take a look at the curves in that paper. It really is a good exercise to go through and it's eye-opening about the difference when we look at this in different ways. Yeah, and I think the key thing with the soft and text trial is, again, the breast cancer collaborators were very smart. They said, we're having a lot of data, so let's increase our sample size and power to detect small differences. 
we have a lot of women who get breast cancer, and even a 3%, 4%, 5% change means a lot when we think about the number of women who are being treated for this disease. One of the things that I really want to highlight there is really there ain't no benefit to adding ovarian suppression in women who aren't getting chemo. So when I think about a premenopausal patient, I don't want to add ovarian suppression because it's very toxic. If they're getting chemo, based on the Oncotype score, which we'll talk about in the next episode, that's the patient that I'm thinking about ovarian suppression. And if they can't tolerate it, we don't have to keep going with it. We're not talking about a 50% improvement in absolute points, right? We need to think about quality of life, and that's critically important. And hopefully our listeners can understand that after the discussion today. But this is a really good recap of chemotherapy, why we choose the regimens that we choose, and thinking about endocrine therapy. So I think this is a good time to wrap up the episode. What do you guys think about that? I agree. I agree. I think that we left our listeners with plenty to think about in this one, and I'm excited to come back and continue this discussion in our next episode. All right. Well, I think that's it for today. So join us next time for another episode of The Fellow on Call. See you later. See you later. Peace. Peace.